getting back, coming back together. I've got just a couple of announcements for you this morning. Really short ones. The first one, next week we are having a, uh, a, a homemade cookie contest. And um, I'm going to be one of the judges. I'll take that hit for the team, sacrifice for the church. Um, we are, we're going to judge. There will be different categories and there will be winners and prizes and all that fun stuff. So uh, if you want to bring your cookies back next week and, and enter into the competition, we'd love to have you do that. Because who doesn't love a good cookie, right? And then uh, the Thursday after next Sunday, so next Sunday is April 12th, the Thursday after that we're starting our next Financial Peace University. And if you're struggling and if, if with your finances to get things under control, maybe you just have never learned how to do uh, uh, your finances, do a budget to, to plan, to do your debt snowball and all the great stuff that Dave Ramsey talks about and how to get ahead, um, we'd love for you to check on your connection card. There's a card right in front of you, um, and you can pull that out and check on the back, Financial Peace University. I would like to attend the next Financial Peace University, and we will get you signed up to be a part of that. We've, uh, we've had a group going through it. Some of them are working on their baby steps right now, and it's great to hear their stories, and we know lots of others who, who uh, have a great story about how it's changed their lives, and millions of people have done it, and we'd love for you to be a part of that and offer to help you in that way if we possibly can. While you have your connection card out, if everyone would pull out your connection card, it looks like this. Um, we, we do something different here at 6-8 Church. We're about doing justice, and one of the ways that you can help us do that is if you, if you take it, your card, and if everyone would just do me, uh, you know, just humor me for this morning and put your name on it, and if, you're, if you are a first-time guest with us, check that box and we'll donate a pair of socks to Northwest Children's Outreach in your honor for uh, turning in that card for being here with us for the first time today. So if you would just do us that honor of filling out that card, we would really appreciate that this morning. To give you a warning, I have been suffering from a cold all week long and uh, I probably will cough, I will sniffle, and I hope not to gross you out too much throughout the service. Um, well, this is Easter. Are you happy that it's Easter? I'm happy. Um, we're, we're talking about me first, and we're going to get into this a little bit, and I, ho I hope you enjoy it, but we live, I don't know if you know this, but we live in a very me first world. Would anyone agree with that statement? We live in a me first world, like it's me first and then all y'all, right? Um, and one of the ways that, that I think that we that we uh, kind of exhibit this wonderful quality, we set our church up to fail with the selfie scavenger hunt, is by the amount of selfies that we take. Now, um, it's just an illustration, so you don't have to feel guilty for taking, for taking selfies. Has anyone seen one of these? You know what this is? Does anyone know what this is? Selfie stick, right? Um, now, I don't know, uh, I don't know what you, if you've heard the news about selfie sticks, but they're actually, they're kind of becoming a problem, and they're starting to get banned because um, they get in the way. Like, museums are banning them because people, you know, will hold it out, and uh oh no, 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 no. Yeah. So people will... Um, 
get into a museum and hold it out, you know, try and take a picture so they're either whacking people in the head or they're knocking art off the walls, you know, that's worth millions of dollars, stuff like that. So museums are starting to ban them. I think Coachella, one of the big, uh, one of the big con concerts anyway, has banned it also. And so um, they're starting to ban selfie sticks because when you get a million people packed into 20 square feet, that's going to be a problem, right? You don't want to have sticks uh, whacking people. Yeah, what? Let's see, this happened last service. Kenan just has to be the, the center of attention. How many me's can I get up on the screen? I think I got more last time. I think I was standing at a different angle. Freaking out the projector. All right, I gotta take a picture. Everybody smile. <laughs> I didn't see it, what did it say? <laughs> All right, so, selfies. Selfies are kinda, you know, I don't know if you know this, Focus. Someone's telling me to focus. I've lost control. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there is a proper way to take selfies. Did you know that? That you're supposed to, uh, you're supposed to hold the camera up at an angle like that, so you get your chin up and it kind of thins out your neck. That's the best angle, so you take that picture and then you put that on Facebook and everyone thinks you're skinny. You can... There we go. Did that work? I'm embarrassing my wife. <laughs> All right, well, we, uh, we live in the selfie generation. Selfie wasn't really even a word until about 10 years ago. It was first used um, in a forum on, uh, in Australia, and somebody uh, fell on a, they got drunk and then fell on some steps and busted their upper lip and took a picture of themselves and said, sorry, it's out of focus, it was a selfie. That's the first, uh, first place we have been able to find. It's like, it's kind of embarrassing that we're at, like excavating the word selfie and to see where it began. It's pretty sad. Um, but you know what a selfie is? A self-portrait taken with, an, you know, with a smartphone usually or a camera phone. And we share them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, right? You know, um, shot from a high angle to get the best angle, get looking good. Um, and initially, it was just popular with young people. Then they be, kind of become widely popular. We all have taken a selfie. Probably most of us in this room have taken a selfie, right? It's okay. We've all done it. I just did it. You know, you can, it's all right. Don't, don't beat yourself up. We don't think you're that narcissistic. Just kidding. But in 2012, Time Magazine considered selfie one of the top ten buzzwords of the year. And uh, in 2012, that's when it really hit the big time. A poll commissioned by smartphone and camera maker Samsung found that selfies make up 30% of the photos taken by people from 18 to 24. 30% of the photos on their phones are selfies. I was gonna ask somebody to give me their phone, but that's probably crossing the line. 
2013, the word selfie had become commonplace enough to be monitored for inclusion in the online version of the Oxford English Dictionary. According to USA Today, we were taking more than one million selfies per day. One million selfies a day. We live in a me-first world. Now, I don't have to, uh, I don't have to poke at selfies to, to kind of hone in on the fact that we live in a me-first world. In fact, I don't have to talk about anyone else except myself to prove to you that we live in a me-first world. The fact that I'm talking about myself is point number one. I like to talk about myself. We live in a me-first world. Um, but I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a selfish person. I'm a me-first person. You can ask our staff. They will, they will validate this fact. I am a me-first person when it comes to food. I have specific food that I like to eat and a lot of food that I don't like to eat, and so we have only a few select restaurants that we're allowed to go to as a staff because I don't like that food. You can ask them, they will will tell you it's it's true. And in fact, uh, we take eight weeks with our core team, not to train them how to lead the church and how to be good members of the church, but to really get into their heads that we have to leave onions out of food when we have potlucks here at the church because nobody likes onions. And uh, I hate onions, by the way, if you can pick up on that. But, uh, and then there's, you know, another one. When I leave from work, I, I want to get home on my timeline. So when I'm pulling out of here, you know, 5, 5.30, whatever time it is, and I'm going home, I'm on a mission to get home. The most important thing in the whole universe at that point in time is me getting home and my schedule. And if you are in the left lane going slow, I am going to get up on your bumper and cause a problem for you, make you uncomfortable until you get out of my way because that's the most important thing. We live in a me first world. I don't know if you ever feel that way, but uh, I do. Now. Not only do we live in a me-first world, but the Pacific Northwest is kind of a particularly me-first part of the country. It's a place where, where we kind of, now I live here, so don't, don't look at me wrong. You know, I live in the, I live in, I'm not from here. I grew up in Ohio. I'm an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, but I, I moved here in 2000. I am a, I am a true bred now Northwest earner, I guess is what you say. <laughs> or Northwesterner, is that what it is? Northwesterner, okay. I was going to say Northwestonian, but that's not right. Um, it's Jacksonian. This is where I came from, Jackson, Ohio. But Northwesterner, I've been here since 2000. I'm a Northwest person. But um, we, we kind of think a lot of ourselves here in the Northwest, right? You know, we, we, we think we're maybe a little bit smarter than the rest of the country. And we talk the right way. We have the right pronunciations of all the words. And when someone comes from a different part of the country and they speak a little bit differently, we just kind of judge them as being not as smart as us because they have a different accent than we have. It's just, I'm not, maybe, maybe this happens. Maybe Maybe it doesn't. I'm not saying for sure that you're doing this, but I have. I'm just kidding. I don't judge people based on their accents. Try to judge them based on what comes out of their mouth. And sometimes what comes out of, I grew up in Southern Ohio, okay? I know what comes out of some people's mouths with those accents. Um, but we think, we think we know better, you know, like uh, we have a lot of laws that, that the rest of the country doesn't have because we just kind of know how we ought to be and how things ought to happen. And so we, we've kind of set our own course and set, a, set our own rule of law when it comes to the way we're going to live. And, and it also plays out in our belief, in our faith. And uh, Portland, Oregon is the, the most unchurched, uh, un, unreligious part, unreligious city in the country. 
42% of people who live in Portland, Oregon are uh, what they would say, they claim no religious affiliation. None at all, 42%. So then that leaves 58% of the people who make up all the other religions uh, of, all, of all the different faith backgrounds. And the, in Washington and Oregon, 25% of us would claim no religious affiliation. Seattle and San Francisco are the second and third uh, when it comes to the least uh, affiliation for churches. We are, we're kind of a do-it-yourself when it comes to our faith. We're gonna make our own faith, we're gonna make our own rules, we're gonna do things the way we wanna do them, and if you disagree, then that's just because you're not as enlightened or as smart as we are. So we let a lot of other ideas in, we let a lot of other philosophies in, like, like uh, Eastern mysticism, um, Sufism, yogic teachings, um, I'm not, not condemning you for any of these, I'm just saying Buddha, uh, t- Tibetan Buddhism in particular, has, uh, Portland has the largest organization of its kind that was founded in 1993 in the entire world that's in Portland, Oregon for Tibetan Buddhism. And then there was a New Thought Church called Living, Enri- Living Enrichment Center with 4,000 members in Wilsonville. And just not too long ago, maybe you saw it on the news, there was an atheist church um, that popped up over in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if you heard about it. You know, they just kind of get together and talk about not God, I guess. You know, I don't know what they talk about. They just kind of get together and complain, probably, is what happens at the Atheist Church. Um, but, but, you know, there's, we just kind of have our own way of doing things. We believe, we just kind of believe a little bit differently, and especially when it comes to telling people how to live their lives. We're not going to let someone else tell us how to live our lives. We live in the enemy first world. It should come as no surprise to us, though, that Portland is all, not, that uh, Portland is the least church, and it's also the most depressed city in the country. There are more depressed people living in Portland than any other city in the country. It's the number one. Washington ranks 14th in, in the states. Oregon is number seven. Portland ranks number four for divorce, highest divorce rate. Twelfth for suicide, Las Vegas is number one for suicide. And it would seem to me that our me first way of life, our me first way of living is kind of leaving a lot of us wanting a lot. It's kind of leaving a lot of us disappointed. When we lay in our beds at night, we find ourselves asking questions like, do I even matter? Does anyone care about me? Why isn't life measuring up to my idea of it? We look at the world around us and we see this huge gap between what we think it should look like and then what we actually see and then we feel empty, right? We feel desperate. We feel unfilled, always looking for the next thing to to numb the pain, to kind of set us at ease until that's no longer enough and we have to take another step and go just a little bit further in a direction we probably didn't want to go in the first place because we just can't handle the pain of it anymore. We can't handle the emptiness of it anymore. So we just need to take another step until we just feel a little more at ease and we keep feeling more and more empty. But God can do a lot with empty. God can do a lot with empty. This me first lifestyle is one that's been going on for a long time. It's one that started way back at the beginning of the story in the Bible. And it starts with Adam and Eve. I just wanna kinda go through a couple of different pieces of this story in the Bible and and look at some of the ways that, that we've been a me first people for all of these years. It starts with 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right, in the garden, and God had given Adam and Eve this big garden, and they had the opportunity to walk with God and communicate with God and be with God in this garden. But there was this one thing, there's just this one area that was kind of off limits. It was the, the, the tree that had the knowledge of good and evil, and, and Satan kind of, the serpent worked his way in there and said, did God really say? And so they took from the tree because, well, me first. I want to be like God. I want to know the difference between good and evil. I want to have the knowledge of it all. I want to be like God, me first. We can move along to others like, like Lot, who, who didn't want to leave behind his life when God called him to it. We can look at David, who, who was so selfish in me first that even though he's in the lineage of, of Jesus and Jesus came from his line, he also he cheated, uh, he, he, he basically forced prostitution on a woman and had her come and, and uh, had, got her pregnant and then uh, had her husband killed so he could have what he wanted, me first. There's a problem that continues on in the New Testament. We see a lot of it as Jesus starts walking on the scenes. We see it with the Pharisees who have established a ritual and a way of living that, that is all about them and how they are going to continue to control and dominate the society that they have created. And they want to remain the religious leaders of that area. And for them to do that, they have to keep everything functioning as it is. And Jesus is coming in and he's kind of messing it up. So, so Jesus is going to have to be the problem that's going to be dealt with. The Pharisees didn't want to let go of their power they were living in a me-first world. This is the world that Jesus comes into. This is the world that Jesus was born into, that he walked on, and then he comes and he says this, and he starts to blow the whole thing up. John chapter 12, 23 through 26, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's a couple of days, a week or so, before he's about to be crucified on the cross, and he knows that it's coming. This is the event that's been leading, that the whole of history has been leading up to this point in time, and here it is. He knows it's about a week away, and he says, the hour has come. This is the time, boys. Gather around. You need to finally hear what I'm about to say. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me where I am. My servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. He just takes the whole thing and flips it upside down. Me first for us is about how we can get more and more and more and more to make ourselves feel better, to feel more in control. Me first for Jesus is, you know what, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna die. That's my first. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna show you how to love. How do you love? You love by laying your life down for someone else. John chapter 13, verse one. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Verse two, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, 
Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, talking about Judas, who would betray him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus, the the creator of the universe, Jesus is the one who created the water, who created the materials that would make the bowl that the water was in. He created the materials that the towel that he would be wrapping around his waist. Jesus is the one that had all of that stuff put into place, put into motion. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, the, the one who sits on the throne over all of the universe. He's the one who was there when it was all made, and here he comes. He steps into the story, and instead of saying, I'm the king, sound the trumpet, worship me, he kneels down and he washes the feet of his disciples. He washes their feet. Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus could have used his power, his position as both fully God and fully man to his own advantage, that he could, have, he could have gotten a lot of stuff in this life if he had used that for his own advantage, for his own glory, but he didn't do that. Instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. We're gonna stop right now. We're gonna celebrate communion. We're gonna remember what Jesus did on that cross. I wanna enter into the story just a little bit. I just kinda wanna step into that night where Jesus was betrayed. The team is gonna come and lead us in a couple of songs and I'd invite you all to stand and come forward and get the elements for communion, get a cracker and get a, get a cup of juice. So would you stand with us? We're just gonna kinda of take a step into the story of Easter and become a part of what Jesus did. Hallelujah for the cross. Even while we were still sinners, even while we were wrapped up in our me first world, even while we're still thinking about how everything should revolve around us, Christ still died on the cross for us. All the mistakes that we've made, all the problems that we've caused because we live in a me first world because we need to make things revolve around us, all of those things, all the mistakes that we've made, Jesus knew those and he had those in mind when he died for us on the cross and he did it anyway. Hallelujah for the cross. If his grace were an ocean, we'd be sinking. We can't understand, we cannot fathom, we cannot imagine the love of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. 
and even knowing that there was a betrayer sitting at the table, knowing that all of his disciples would betray him, he gave the disciples the symbol, even though they didn't understand it yet because the crucifixion hadn't happened, wasn't happening until the next day, even though they didn't understand it, he still gave them the symbol that would carry on through thousands of years to this day where we would stop and remember he entrusted them with communion even though we're all messed up. So he took the bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Take, eat, in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. He took the cup of wine It would represent the new covenant he was making with us. The old covenant was gone. This is a new covenant. The old covenant's filled. It's it's fulfilled. Jesus met those requirements. And then now the new covenant is a covenant of grace. And he took the cup, passed it, said, drink in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you poured out your love for us on that cross and a powerful way so that we would have the opportunity to to know you, to be in a relationship with you. Hallelujah. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We do things a little bit differently here. We do our sermon in two, two sections, so it's a little easier to bear. But I just kind of want to pick up where we left off. Here we are. We entered into the story a little bit. We're sitting in the room. We're at the table with Jesus and the 12 disciples. And here at the table is another me first. It's Judas. Judas who would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Me first. Judas was known for taking money off of the top of the money bag and stealing some, setting some aside for himself. And so he probably saw that the end was coming. He probably saw that Jesus' time was about over. He needed to squeeze as much out of Jesus as he possibly could. This is the best way he can do it. I'm going to go, and I'm going to get 30 pieces of silver, and then I'll be done with this thing. And then after dinner, Jesus went out to pray. And he told his disciples to stay and keep watch. And he said, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray. A stone's throw away. This is Jesus' prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Here Jesus, me first, is 
Father, if there's any way, if, there's, if you're willing, I know what's about to happen. If there's any way, you can please take this away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. They fell asleep. Oh, but you don't know what happened to them. They were tired. They'd been walking a long time. The next day he goes to the cross. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with Jesus to be executed. He's just gone through probably the most brutal 24 hours of torture that anyone has ever known. He's been through interrogation upon interrogation through all hours of the night. He's been flogged, he's been beaten, he's had a crown of thorns shoved into his head. He had to carry his cross that he would be crucified on and now he's nailed to this cross and he's hanging there. Two other men are hanging with him. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And while he offers his prayer of forgiveness, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a sign over his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even hanging on the cross, he's bringing someone into the kingdom. Here you've got the one thief hurling insults, making fun of Jesus. The other kind of recognizes who Jesus is and, and Jesus in the middle. I don't actually know if he was in the middle. I don't know. You'll be with me in paradise. See, the me first of the world is always looking at me. It's always, it's always looking in. It's always looking at what can I do to get more for me, right? It's always what can I pull in so that I can have everything that I want. Just like those who cast lots for his clothing, you know, they just wanted a piece of his clothing. Who knows what, why they wanted or what they wanted to do with it that fulfilled a prophecy that that would happen. But here's Jesus on the cross and he just had prayed to forgive them. Jesus, me first, is always loving others. It's always caring for others. It's always reaching out and shining and pouring out grace on people. Our me first is always myself. How do I put me first? What can I get the most out of? So we're kind of caught between these two things. 
We're caught between these two ideas, between the me first of the world and Jesus me first. And here, the one who has the right me first, the one who has all the hope that we need, all the hope that can carry us on from this life to the next, all the, everything that we could possibly need for life and godliness, the, the hope. Here he is, he's hanging on the cross, and then he prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathes his last, and he died. Now what? Now what? Now, now where does that leave us? Now, I know I'm, I shouldn't be this me first person. I know that I'm kind of messed up. Actually, I know that I'm really messed up, but, but Jesus just died. Now what do we do? On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who had told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. You wonder why Easter is a big deal. You wonder why Easter is so important to us as followers of Jesus Christ. As we come together and we want so many people to hear about this story of Easter and the good news that, that Jesus has risen from the dead, what's the big deal? Why is it so important? Why does it matter so much? Because if Jesus dies and Jesus stays dead, there is no hope for overcoming anything that this world is going to burden us with. But Jesus didn't die and stay dead. Jesus was fully God and fully man and fully God. He rose and conquered death, hell, and the grave. Amen. Amen. Besides Justin Bieber modeling for an underwear commercial, what's the scariest thing you can think of? What's the scariest thing you can think of? Shout something out if you got something scary. Scariest thing. That's pretty scary, yeah. Spiders, did someone say spiders? I'm with you on spiders. Yeah, <laughs> that's terrifying. What? Tornadoes. How about death? Anyone afraid of dying? Anyone afraid of that, that thing that's kind of sitting out there on the horizon, the thing that's just, we all know it's coming. We all know it's there. It's scary, right, when you don't know what it is, when you don't know how to deal with it. Well, what would be the most hopeful thing a Savior could do 
that would give us the assurance that we need. Forgive us for our sins. Yes, that's wonderful, but what are we forgiven to? Being forgiven from is a great thing, but what are we forgiven into? We are forgiven into the resurrection. We are forgiven, put to death the old man and raised to life in Christ. When, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he bore the weight of all of our sins. He, he bore the brunt of all of the punishment that was due us because we are me first and we're selfish and we've sinned and we've done all of these things that have added up to a lifetime of mess. And Jesus took all of that to the cross and he bore the punishment, the wrath that God had for us that, we, that was deserving for us, that, that should be on our shoulders, the wrath that we should have to pay the price of. He took all of that to the cross and he bore the weight of it and then he died. And then he didn't just stay dead, he conquered death and he rose again to give us life from what we're forgiven from and what we're forgiven to. Jesus' resurrection is not just something that happened on Easter. Jesus' resurrection is everything. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. So what I'm asking of us this morning, as we kind of wrap things up, is for you to join a revolution. It's a revolution that started a couple thousand years ago when, um, when the disciples finally got it. when the disciples finally understood what had happened after, after the resurrection, they went to a, a, a place 50 days or so after a day we call Pentecost. You know, I have to rock, walk back here to get this thing working. Don't you love long, awkward pauses and silences? <laughs> so here we have the disciples. They finally get it. Peter preaches this sermon. At the end of the sermon, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. That was what the call was. Repent from what? Repent from sin. Repent from a life that exists to totally please myself, right? A life that exists where I am the center of the universe, where I am the God on top of everything, and here I am, I'm sitting on the throne of my life, and everything in the world revolves around me, and everything exists for me. This is the life that we're supposed to repent from. 
There's this amazing thing about these phones. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the upper, right hand, upper left hand corner, there's this little button. And everything changes when you push that little button. See the difference? You see the difference? No matter how much I smile, I can only get a few of me up on that screen, but hey, look at this. Everybody smile. What is the life we're supposed to walk away from? It's the me first life. And Jesus actually calls us into a different kind of me first. He calls us out of the me first that's all about me into the me first that's me first to love, me first to give, me first to serve, me first to care, me first to meet the needs of others, me first to do whatever needs to be done to care for those around me. Jesus said, this is how people will know you're my disciples, by what? By the way that you love one another. Jesus is saying, look, look, you gotta do what I just did. You gotta lay down your life, you gotta set it all aside, stop living for yourself and start looking, how can I love the world around me? How does it start? By turning away from this life, putting your faith in Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross, asking for the forgiveness of our sins and walking into that new resurrection what we've been forgiven from, what we've been forgiven for. That's the revolution we're inviting you to join this morning. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the universe, did not come so that people would serve him. He did not shout fanfare and, and blow trumpets when he entered into this world. He came in a humble manger, and he walked and lived a humble life, and he did and spent his whole life serving and loving and caring for others. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom as a ransom for many, what are we supposed to do? Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Maybe you've, you've wrestled with this before. Maybe you've, maybe you've even prayed a, a prayer and asked for forgiveness of your sins, but, but you kind of leave you know, wondering, feeling a little bit like something didn't quite make sense because if all that were forgiven of is just our sins, and that's the only thing that happens in, in the gospel taking hold of our lives, and then, then what about the rest of our life after we receive the gospel? We weren't just forgiven from our sins, we're forgiven for something. The gospel doesn't just, just wash over all the mistakes that we made, the gospel changes us and starts to move us in the direction God has for us so that we can live the life that he has called us to live, and the life that he has called us to live is to love God, to love others, serve. So we're asking you to join the revolution this morning. We join the me first revolution that Jesus Christ 
started when he walked on this planet, when he died on that cross, when he rose from the dead. Will you join a revolution? We walk away from this life and all of the things that, that entangle us, all the things that, that we want to see in our lives, we want to grab and, and bring in to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We walk away from all of that and just kind of go counter to the culture that we live in and everything that's saying, you know what, just go after what you want and get yours and make, make your life better. Will you, will you walk away from that and, and turn away from that and turn and walk toward God and, and say, you know what, God, I need your forgiveness for that life. Will you help me live life you've called me to live. Let's stand together. The band's going to come. We're going to close. I'd like everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. I want to just pray a couple of prayers for those of you who are gathered here this morning. The first prayer is for some here who have probably never taken that step of faith and put your belief in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to pray a prayer, and if you want to pray it with me, this could be the start of your journey away from the me first life and towards the me first revolution of Jesus Christ. So pray along with me if you would like to start that journey. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I know that I have lived a life that's focused on me, and there's a lot of damage that I've done, a lot of mistakes I've made because of that life, and I need your forgiveness. I believe in the work that Jesus did. I believe in <coughs> the sacrifice he paid I believe in the grace that he gives us through the cross. I believe that through him my sins are forgiven and I am now seen as righteous. God sees me through his son, Jesus Christ, no longer sees my sin but sees his holiness. And I believe that apart from this we can't do anything. And from this point on I commit my life to walking with you. I commit my life to to being the person that loves you the most and loves others, puts ourselves third, that we're always focused on the others around us and loving them and doing what God has called us to do. I commit my life to you in this moment, in this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I wanna, I wanna pray another prayer because I think all of us get off track in this. We all get off track and and kind of just go back into old habits, old patterns, old routines where everything in life starts to be about making ourselves happy and being me first, me first, me first. And I think we just kind of need to step away from that. We need to step toward the cross, away from those things. We need to repent. So I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and that your grace does not just cover our sins in the past, but that your grace covers the sins that we will commit today and the sins that we'll commit in the future, that every day your grace is new, every morning your mercy is new, great is your faithfulness every single day. Father, I thank you that perfection is not required from us. I thank you that we don't have to live a perfect life, but that mistakes and all, you welcome us into your kingdom, into your family. 
But Father, for those areas that come to mind as we've talked this morning, those things that come into our minds that, that we know are wrong, that we need to walk away from, those things where we're putting ourselves first, that this pleasure, this desire, this habit, this pattern, this routine, whatever it is that we've been making more important than you in our lives, I pray, Father, that you'd help us to set that down, put it away, and to put you back on the throne of our lives to give our entire being, our heart, our mind, our soul, our body, our strength over to you for your kingdom and for your glory that we would not hold on to anything so that we can have a selfish little piece of our heart for ourselves, but that we'd give it all over to you and join the revolution that you started walking away from that and walking toward the resurrected life. Father, I pray that you would do a powerful work in us this morning. Let us experience once again the resurrection anew. In Jesus' name, amen.